we're back to the Neil Haley show. And you know, when I'm talking about this guest, I'm talking about, you know, I interview all these major celebrities, but when I think about pit football, it's, I think about one guy, especially his great career and I'm rooting him on all the time. Tyler Palco, former NFL player and pit star Tyler. Thanks for stopping by. How are you, man? Neil, great, great. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's awesome. I, I definitely uh, am going to be underwhelming if you're interviewing top celebrities. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, from Brett Favre to you know anybody you can name that you've watched the show or a different thing. But again, I get more excited about Pitt. Why? Because I'm a Pittsburgh guy. My mom went to Pitt, and I grew up season ticket holder for football and basketball for years. And it just—it's just something about Pitt. But we know all your story, and kind of just jumping back, I know it a lot when it comes to, you know, Pittsburgh. Your dad, a football coach. It's just from the beginning, you probably had your mind you're going to go to Pitt, right? Yeah, I wish I wish I could say that. Um, you know, my, I, I was fortunate enough to have um, you know the recruiting process start a little earlier. Um, you know, my, my freshman year, I think I had you know probably eight or ten offers. Um, you know, because we played on a really good team, and and um, and so that that process started a little early for me. But um, you know, it wasn't until um, you know I, I kind of figured out um, you know that that I wanted to be part of uh, rebuilding. Uh, my one of you know my hometown team. Um, I met Coach Harris, and and he was the the kind of quarterback guru at that time. And um, you know, I I wanted to be part of of bringing kind of the 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 lore and the luster back to to Pitt. So when I when I committed, it was kind of you know after a um, a day on campus at the Pitt quarterback uh, receiver camp, and I woke up one morning and just kind of said, this is this is where I need to be. So. Um, glad it was a great decision for me. And, and, you know, unfortunately we weren't able to kind of get it all the way back, but, uh, it's fun to see them on top, uh, again, um, with, with Kenny and, and, um, and coach dues. So, um, you know, everything works, works out. So let's kind of, let's, uh, this is just such an interesting story in, in so many ways that, you know, Walt bringing back the program and all these different things where you were recruited, highly recruited by so many more schools than just Pitt, right. And just choosing Pitt. You're glad you did. It was a great decision, but who else was recruiting you? I think at the time, my dad and I got it. I think we got it down to probably, I don't know, seven or eight schools. So it was Michigan, Penn State, Wisconsin, LSU, Florida State. Um, I think Oklahoma might have been in the mix, USC. Um, but I think at that time, you know, before all this social media stuff, you know, they, they went through the, you know, the quote unquote, you know, um, college football ranking uh, magazine of, of like, you know, where you're at. And, and at that point in time, I was, was a, was a, I guess, highly ranked quarterback, but I wasn't, was an athlete and I played free safety and was, was an all state free safety. So there was a couple of schools that, that, um, you know, wanted me to play free safety and, and, a you know, funny story, you know, coach, coach Saban, um, you know, recruited me at Michigan state and then at LSU and, and he would always, tell my dad, um, you know, this kid could play free safety. And I had had, you know, a bunch of coaches tell me, well, you know, like, I just don't know if you can play quarterback. And and when you're an 18 year old kid, 17 year old kid, you're, you know, someone tells you you can't do something, you're a hard head and you want to do it. But I asked coach Saban after that, um, you know, why, you know, why he thought that I was a better free safety. And he right. <laughs> said, after every interception, you made the tackle. Um, so, so it was kind of a, 
backhand a compliment, but yeah, I think th- those were the final schools. I can't remember offhand, but, but I committed before my senior year. So I didn't take any official visits. Um, I didn't want to be a distraction to my team going into that year. We, you know, we had lost in the state championship game the previous two years. So I just wanted to get a decision off the table, not be a distraction and, and go finish the business and win in the state title of my senior year. Playing with your father. That's got, that's gotta be great. Right. In so many ways. Yep. Um, was fortunate enough to, to play for a legendary coach and, you know, he just happened to be my dad. So there were some, uh, there were some dinner conversations that were uh, less than, than um, ideal. Uh, but um, it was awesome, you know, playing for him, uh, looking back at it and having four kids of my own, um, you know, knowing how special that is now being a father for, for him and for me. Um, but, you know, as a coach, I still call him coach Pelk when I see him. So um, he's, he made a huge impact in my life, uh, as a player and as a man and, and, and obviously as a dad. So, um, he's impacted a lot of kids, um, over the, the 30 plus years he's been coaching. So I just feel fortunate that I had, uh, him as a coach and a dad. So it was cool. All right. Fondest memories of, uh, you know, playing at Pitt, what would you say? Um, you know, I, I get that question asked a lot. I mean, obviously, I think that the you know five touchdown game against Notre Dame gets gets you know a lot of a lot of hype, um, especially with the uh, post game uh, snafu that happened. But um, my my biggest memory at Pitt, the turning point in my career, was the Nebraska game uh, at Heinz Field when I got benched uh, for a series. It kind of you know got me to open up my eyes and realize, hey you know, just go out and play football like you've done your whole entire life. Um, so that was probably the biggest turning point, my career, uh, my football career. Uh, and that just happened to be a pit, but we had some really cool, um, cool moments to, you know, beat Notre Dame at Notre Dame, um, you know, winning the big East and playing in a BCS game for the first time. And, uh, since I think since Danny left, um, in the, with a sugar bowl, but, uh, there were some really, really good memories. I just, was was telling you before we hopped on. I just was was sad we couldn't we couldn't um, you know finish the job. You know, Walt got fired um, by uh, an athletic director who I um, was was not happy with um, and, and kind of screwed up uh, that that momentum that we had. But um, you know it was it was it was a good five years. I, I uh, don't regret anything about it. It was it was super fun and um, you know glad to be a part of uh, of the pit pit lore and in the history of, of that uh, traditional tradition program. Thinking back to teammates of yours and just to the experiences at Pitt, was that something that's, you know, because we're going to get to the NFL next because a lot of people don't know the backstory in your NFL career, you know, because they, you were a backup, but you got yeah. a lot of opportunity and had a lot of success, meaning not many people get the opportunity to play in the NFL bottom line. That's the, the bottom line, but tell me, you know, specifically, you know, some of your teammates you played with and how you stayed connected with them throughout, you know, college or the, in the NFL college, college. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my, you know, best friend, college roommate was Larry Fitzgerald. So, I mean, I don't think that, that, you know, that, that kind of um, that name kind of, uh, yes. you know, speaks for itself. He'll be a first bell hall of famer, but he's, he's a guy that, that um, I'm, I still stay close with. He's a godfather of my youngest daughter and oh, wow. um, was in my wedding and, and, um, you know, just a good human being, great man. Um, and, and to be around greatness like that, um, at, at an early age, you know, I think a lot of times you can, you hear people say, you just knew he was different and, and he's no, he's no different in that statement. I mean, he, he dropped one ball, 
uh, in practice in two years, one. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and what I'm talking about, you know, warmups and, and pat and go. And I mean, the, the guy just had an unbelievable set of hands, um, you know, so, so, you know, Larry's probably the most prominent, but we played with a lot of, a lot of good players that, that had a chance to, um, you know, take the step, the next step to the NFL, some all Americans, HB blades, Scott McKillop, um, Gerald Hayes, um, you know, Rod Rutherford, you know, played in the NFL was, was, I backed him up early on in my career. So we played with a lot of uh, Rob Petiti, um, a lot of really good players that, that I still stay in contact with. And now that we're, you know, old and washed up and, Moving on, we're dads. Oh, don't say you're old because I remember watching when I was watching you play. You know what I mean? It's I a relative term. It's football yeah, years, right? Yeah, it's kind of yeah, like I know, I know, I know, I know. But yeah, those guys. It's fun to see them, you know, becoming dads and husbands, and and uh, you know, you know, businessmen and coaches, and that that's the fun part for me to to stay connected to see you know what they were like in college and and trying to figure it out, and and now you know, productive members of society and and doing some great things. So it's, it was, that's the thing that I missed the most, the locker room. It's, it's a, uh, it's a constant search to try to find that, uh, that little fix that um, you had as a, as a teammate in the locker room. Yeah. So that, so that, that experience in the NFL comes because you had a great experience, brought pit football to a certain level that is beyond belief. NFL time comes. Did you think you were going to play in the NFL? Did you have a hopes of the NFL? What was your like mindset? You know, because you had a really great career in college, but you understand the whole process of what they, I'm sure they talked talk about other positions for you and stuff, Tyler, and same thing, you know, making that decision, the step the NFL, did you think you'd have a career or what were your thoughts during college, especially at certain times? Yeah. I mean, I, my, my sophomore year was a really good year. I was, I think that that next year I was on a Heisman watch list. And again, that stuff's all, you know, BS when it comes down to rankings, but I knew that I was going to have a chance to, to, to play, you know, where I got drafted and all that other stuff was based off of things that were outside of my control. Um, but I knew um, I was going to have a chance to do it. Uh, Matt Cavanaugh, who came in after they fired Walt with, with coach Wadstat, you know, helped really kind of turn me into a, a professional quarterback in the way that, that I, you know, approached the game. Um, and then I got invited to the senior bowl. Um, and so I knew that it was, it was, you know, it was something in the, in the cards for me. And then, you know, um, just, I didn't get drafted. I was a free agent and, and ended up going to, uh, to New Orleans, um, and backing up Drew, uh, with, with Sean Payton, which was, an, I, I don't think I could have gone to a better place to, to learn how to be a professional quarterback behind, you know, Drew Brees and, and Sean Payton. So, um, you know, it was, you know, it, it's not a mat, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And, and I was able to, to kind of fight and scrap and claw and, and, and last a couple of years, you know, living out my, my childhood dream and, um, you know, got a chance to start a couple of games, uh, in the NFL as a starting quarterback with, with the chiefs. And, um, but the majority of my time was, was, uh, carrying a clipboard and patting guys on the ass when they came off the field. So it was, it was fun. Yeah. But see that that's the best job, right? Some people say the next best job. <laughs> no, I don't care what <laughs> that's not true. You'd rather start. I, I understand. I no, 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 I'm just no. saying, but the experience, what you learn from this experience, getting to play, let's talk about, you know, getting to play Drew Brees and have, you know, in that, what did you learn from Drew? I mean, I'm sure these the, certain people were great role models for you in the NFL. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I got a chance to back up some really good players. I mean, Drew, uh, Kurt Warner in Arizona, Ben in, in Pittsburgh, uh, Matt Castle in 
Kansas City. I mean, he learned from Tom Brady. So, um, you know, Drew, Drew just, I mean, taught you how to be a pro. I mean, I got a chance to ride with him to work. Um, you know, I, I lived with him for a couple of weeks, um, you know, in between minicamp and OTAs and all that stuff. So, I mean, just to see how he approaches the game as a professional, he was the first guy that I heard say, I got to go to work, um, you know, and, and he was going to practice. And so, I mean, just, Hey, it, it, it's work. I, I, you know, this is my craft. This is how I make my money. And, 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 um, you know, how he approached watching tape and, and taking care of his body and, and, and being a good husband. I mean, he was a great role model for me in that respect to, to be a rookie, you know, a young guy in the NFL to see how it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't have, you know, an easy pathway there either. So it was, it was cool to see, um, you know, my first couple of years in the NFL, how to do it the right way. So Drew was, was a great role model. He's a great man, great dad, great husband, um, you know, stay in contact with him every once in a while. Uh, but, but, I, like I said, couldn't, couldn't have asked to go to a better place. And, and Sean Payton, um, just, you know, the genius he is as an offensive mind. I know I, I thought I knew a lot about football growing up around it. And I did, I, I did, but you know, those two years in New Orleans were, you know, I learned more football in two years there than I did, you know, my whole entire life. So it was a, it was a great experience. Wow. Okay. And so your, your last stop, and we're going to get to life after football because it's always interesting to me in a short time we have, because I would love to chat with you again, Tyler, because again, just s- tremendous guy. You're very, very humble in so many ways for the accolades you had in your college career to get to play in the NFL and what you've learned from these specific great players that you are able to play under and, and play with. Uh, you ended up in Kansas City and that ended up being where your home is now. Tell me specifically enough, the experience in Kansas City made that happen? Kind of tell us a little bit of that story, and then we'll talk about life after football. So you, Yeah, I mean, the, so, I mean, I, um, were they your last team? You played yeah, the Chiefs were, yeah. I brought uh, Todd Haley. Um, I was with him in, in Arizona, and, you know, when he got the job, I, I had a chance to compete for, for a backup role there and, and came in and, and did my first year, and then, the second year I was there, um, you know, stayed on and, and, and was the primary backup to, to Matt. Um, so Todd gave me an opportunity to, to live out my dream. And Matt got hurt, you know, at the end of the season and broke his, his wrist or his hand. And I remember where I was at when Todd called me and said, hey, kid, it's it's your time. You got the keys. And um, and so I think I started five or six games um, that that year. And um, Kansas, I ended up meeting my wife and, and, or, you know, who my, my wife is now, uh, we have four kids and she's born and raised in Kansas city. So I've, I've been here since, you know, 2012, I think 2013, um, raising our family out here in Kansas city, but yeah, it was Kansas city always be a special place, right? I mean, it's the first time I got a chance to, to say that I was a starting quarterback in the NFL and, um, it's where, where home is now. So it was, was a cool experience. Um, and you know, that's kind of where, where life has taken me. So life after football, why the decision to retire and jump plans of what you wanted to do? Well, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but you know, the, the whole word retire like that in, in football terms, that just means, you know, for most of us that no one wants you anymore. So it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's a relative term when you say retire, um, forced retirement maybe, but, um, Chuck Knoll said it the best, you know, football is a, a small part of your life and, um, you know, you're going to spend, you know, the vast majority of your life after football, um, you know, achieving your life's work. And, and I, 
when I was done, I, I, you know, did a couple of things in the NFL with some, some internships in the off season that they were so graciously, you know, they're readily available to you. Um, but, but ultimately finalized on, you know, getting into the business world in um, with a company called solutions 21 that, our founder, Buddy Hobart, uh, who's a Pittsburgh guy, CMU guy from Homestead, um, started in 1994. And, um, you know, long story short, we figured out that we had a lot of commonality between what we wanted to do. And we're a, a human capital development firm. So essentially, we're the strength coach in football terms for companies uh, developing their existing and future leaders um, for, the, for their organization. So I figured that um, instead of getting fired after a bad season and having to move to a new city that, uh, I can control my outcomes a little bit better in the, in the, uh, the business world. And, and, um, you know, we're, we're growing it and, and, um, doing some really cool things at solutions 21. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's, that's what we're doing now. So what is ultimately, so that entrepreneurship mindset and all that, did you have that growing up? Do you ever think sports springs to it? I, I, I've always been inquisitive about business. You know, I was playing golf in the off season with these, you know, presidents and CEOs of companies and I was a NFL quarterback. So I could have, you know, I can ask questions that, you know, business peers couldn't, right. I was, well, how do you guys, you know, build your business? How do you compete? Like, how do you beat your rivals? And I was just inquisitive at that point in my life and figured out they didn't really have like a very formalized plan, right? Like in the NFL, you, 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 you know, it's your, your nutrition and your, your, your weight room and film study. And that's how you develop into a really good player. And, you know, I just, I felt in the business world, there was no real predictable way to develop talent. Um, and I was like, man, this is, I want to start my own company. And that led me to meet Buddy Hobart, who's the founder of our company through mutual friends. And we just had lunch out in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and he was going to just kind of help me start my own gig. But you know, a couple of bottles of wine later, we <laughs> figured out um, that it would probably be best to, you know, build onto a house that's already built and existing, then build your own house. And, um, you know, 10 years later, here I am. And yet here you are. Where do you want to see Solutions 21 go? What is the ultimate goal? Yeah, ultimately, we want to be um, the firm of choice that organizations look to develop world-class performers. We're, um, we're the best in the business right now, um, and we believe that internally. But uh, just like any other brand that you build, you have to get other people to believe it. And we're doing a hell of a job right now with our team to, to show that, that you know, the, the talent that we have on our team and the products that we have, um, no one can really compete with. So we're, we're grinding away and, and growing like crazy. And uh, ultimately, we'll um, you know we want our brand associated with world class performers, and any organization that you know wants to develop those types of people are gonna gonna reach out to us. So that's that's what we want to do. So where do you see that? So get, kind of give me the specifics. Like, uh, what industries are you focused mostly upon? On is there a specific area? You're yeah. Right so now? primarily, we're in like the privately held mid market sector um, when we started, but we have. You know, if you were to audit our company, we're in basically four or five industries, construction, manufacturing, banking, insurance, and then medical. So, um, you know, any business that's associated with it, whether it's an insurance broker that has 250 people or a bank that's a publicly traded bank that has, you know, 20,000 employees, they all are still fighting the same fight with, I can't find enough talent, I can't keep enough talent, and I can't develop enough talent. Um, with the, the, the environment that, 
that we're in, involved in in business right now. That that has two big variables: this post-COVID um, environment, the remote work, uh, hybrid approach to work, remote management, and then the massive amount of baby boomers that are exiting the workforce. Ten thousand baby boomers turn sixty-five a day um, until the end of this decade. So there's a bunch of people that have built, you know, this this you know business environment that are marching toward retirement or have already have one foot out the door and organizations from a sports standpoint, haven't built their bench strong enough to be able to sustain that. So that's kind of where we fit. So do you think Tyler, it's the, the fact is it's the, the talent pool is low because of the baby boomers getting out and then remote work and other people create looking at entrepreneurship and not enough talent developed not yeah, numbers. I think it's it's a couple of things. It's 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 numbers. There's not enough Gen Xers and baby, um, not enough Gen Xers to replace baby boomers. There's a 18 person million person gap between baby boomers and Gen Xers, and then you know there's a massive amount of of millennials, Gen Y, 84 million that are you know my age, right, 1980 to 2000, though born that are, that are in the prime of their career. And um, organizations have traditionally kind of done the bide your time, you know, wait behind a person in line, climb the corporate ladder. And that's just not the environment that, that businesses are operating now. Competition, speed, um, uh, and, and, and talent retention are just, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they look different now. So people are going to have to start adjusting their strategy on how they acquire talent, develop talent and keep talent, uh, retain it. And, and we've kind of written the book on how to do that in the 21st century. Uh, Buddy Hobart, our founder has written five or six books on this topic. And, um, you know, we're, we're kind of the pioneers in, in, um, in this space. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty Very cool. interesting because that's the thing, the getting people to work, keeping your employees there, having them be satisfied. And so from your, your company's perspective, you're really looking at looking inside that company and how they're developing training and, and, uh, and trying to retain talent. Is that Yeah. It? Yeah. I mean, it, it's just a different strategy, right? So you think about it from a football standpoint, you know, um, um, you know, the Bill Belichick has had to adapt his philosophy over the 30 plus years he's been coaching in the NFL. And, you know, the way that he coached in 1995 is drastically different than the way he coaches now. Same thing. There's some things that hold true, right? Discipline, you know, the right culture fit, but you know, the players have changed. So you're going to have to adapt how you coach them, adapt, how you recruit them, adapt, how you develop them. You know, you don't have three day practices anymore. You have maybe one a day and then you don't have the same, you know, rules of the game. You can't hit the way you used to. So business is no different. And you just, the rules have changed to the game. The rules have changed. And if you don't play by the rules that the game requires now, you know, you're going to be behind the eight ball. And that's just the way that we've looked at it. It's not that people won't work. It's that you have to find people, you have to get them, you know, bought into what you're doing. You have to, you know, get them, you know, under a microscope of how do you develop them? How do you make it, how do you make it productive for them to help you rather than, hey, you should just be thankful to have a job. It's just old school versus new school. And it doesn't mean old school is bad and new school is good. It just means that the rules have changed and you need to adapt to the rules that, that, 
you know, the environment requires. So we've, we've done an unbelievable job of, of figuring out how to help organizations do that and, and develop their bench of talent to go win ball games. And that's, so you also are in the the process of finding right talent for the company as well. It's yeah, we're not, we're not headhunters, but we we've, we've helped uh, organizations develop a strategy to not be so dependent on old school ways of finding talent. So it's, it's just, it's different, right? So again, if you relate it back to sports, right? You know, you don't need, like YouTube has been able to show highlight reels of people, what they can do, but that, that, that talent on that highlight reel doesn't tell the whole story. So it's just, it's different, right? On how you recruit talent. I see. So you work with the organization and their human resources to find the right talent, but not do it. You're not headhunting. You're more saying, this is what's going to be the best piece for that company to fit the right place. This is where you're here's certain. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's the type of players that you need to recruit based off of what you told me. And then once they get into the organization, we develop them, right? We're the strength coach. We help develop, you know, the raw skills to develop them into future managers and future leaders and future executives within that organization. So we're the, we're the strength coach of that organization um, and, and help them figure out the strategy of what kind of players do we recruit? What type of offense do we run, right? What type of defense do we run? And then what type of players do you need to develop or to recruit so we can make them into uh, productive players on the field. It's no, I, everything I learned in this business, I learned by the time I was 18, it's just now adapting it into the vernacular of, of the business world. All right. So best place we can find information on you and solutions 21. Where can we go? Yeah, I appreciate that. Neil. it's just solutions 21.com. Um, you know, we're a, we're a, um, a, a, na- a national company headquartered in Pittsburgh. We have offices in Kansas city and Phoenix, uh, Tampa, Jacksonville, and Nashville. Um, but yeah, solutions21.com. Um, and then all the uh, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and all the other handles are just solutions21. So uh, appreciate the opportunity for that shout out. And reaching out to you, they can reach out to you on LinkedIn if they want. Yeah, LinkedIn or, you know, it's just tpelco at solutions21.com. I've had the same cell phone number since I was 18. So it's, it's uh, <laughs> if, if you've had my cell phone, it, it's, uh, it hasn't changed. Saying, all right. Well, we appreciate it, Tyler. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, bud. All right, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome first my co-host, Dr. Ted Grellner. Dr. Ted, how are you? I know you're excited about getting just more and more interesting guests, authors, celebrities. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? It's, it's true, especially having a, a distinguished writer who comes from some great uh, background training and being at University of Texas, where my son did his MBA. And my daughter was born in Texas, so hook them horns. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. All right, great. So we have award-winning journalist and author John Yearwood. His new book, Jar of Pennies. How are you, John? And I appreciate you stopping by. Oh, Neil, great to meet you. I'm doing fine. Uh, Dr. Ted, good to see you today. This is going to be fun. Thank you very much. It's definitely going to be fun because let's just jump right into it. Like, you know, specifically, why did you write the book? And it's really shocking of what your findings were and stuff. (laughs) Well, well, (laughs) shocking because, you know, it's a true story of East Texas. So that there you are. Uh, East Texas is a has a, a kind of unique culture. If you took West Texas independence and married it to 
the aristocratic nostalgia of the deep south, you would have East Texas. So it's not an easy marriage. It's kind of uneasy. Uh, you've got these competing emotions always going on in everybody. So, uh, so you do end up with some fairly interesting story situations. I wrote the story because I had uh, owned a newspaper in East Texas uh, for about 15 years. And, um, uh, and the stories just, man, they just, every day there was an, another story pouring in, another story pouring in, another story pouring in, just a constant, um, constant flow, inflow of, uh, of information and characters and story situations. Uh, and over the decades since I have uh, uh, sold that paper and moved on, um, I found that the, the stories tended to, I don't know, they were, there was an urgency to telling them. Um, they wanted, it was as though they themselves had a life that, that wanted to be expressed. And they began in my mind to organize themselves into this, into this pattern. Uh, and I figured, you know, I've written some other novels. And, uh, uh, and when I started having this experience with, uh, with my recollections and my memories, I realized I had a pretty good story here. And I just wanted to tell that story. So does that answer your question? I, yeah, it does in a way, definitely, because again, it's just shocking, but it's it's expected in that time period in East Texas, right? Well, yeah, um, you know, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about the particular time period. It was the end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s is when the, is when the book was, was set. And that was the, you know, that was the start of the Reagan administration. And I realized it was also just right at the cusp of the of the digital revolution we had not quite we, nobody had had quite gotten to the point where wi-fi was a thing or whether where there was internet service uh, you know some some outliers were were playing with it but but uh, it wasn't it was not a widespread phenomenon so it's almost as though that particular time period was a kind of watershed in american culture uh, and also a watershed in the, in the culture of this place because they were so backward. I mean, the 20th century had not caught up <laughs> with, with East Texas by, 19, by 1980. Um, I lived in a county, a thousand square miles of county. Um, it had two stoplights. <laughs> yeah, really. It had, yeah, two, two stoplights. Uh, if you if you took all of the paved roads, the playgrounds, the 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 tilled farmland, houses, parking lots, you took all of that space and combined it, you would get seven percent of the total uh, space in the area in the county, and the other ninety three percent was in forest. Hmm. It's unbelievable. People don't realize that Texas has got these kinds of forests, but there's an area over in East Texas, the size of England, 55,000 square miles of forest land that lies on either side of the Sabine River all the way up to, uh, up to Arkansas. Hmm. And, and the, the, the forest land is dense. And some, for some reason, it's, it's like everything else everything else sort of develops and you can, and you can see some progress going on and you can see, you know, think, well, stoplights and, and streetlights and sidewalks and, and paved roads. And those things 
had been going on for decades, 50 years before they got to East Texas. Um, I don't know, it's just, it's like there's this detour around the area. And, and it's not, that's not just a contemporary phenomenon. Uh, that, that area of East Texas is called the Big Thicket. And there's a national preserve over there called the Big Thicket National Preserve, which has been awarded a man and biosphere reserve status by the United Nations. And that's because it is a unique um, um, ecological center. And it's left over, basically, it's left over from the last ice age in North America. Because as the ice moved down from the north, it pushed all of the, all of the plant life and, and animal life further and further away from that wall of ice. Well, at some point, there had been a probably that um, asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs and basically created the Gulf of Mexico um, and shoved ground up from the Gulf of Mexico. And the highest point between the Gulf of Mexico and Arkansas lies 55 miles mm. north of the Gulf. It's 800 feet above sea level. And that's, that's not huge, okay? For Texas but, it is. Yeah, yeah, well, but for the co Gulf Coast, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it, forms, it forms a kind of ridge all the way around. It goes, actually goes through a bit of Louisiana, it forms a ridge all the way around. And all of those plant and animal life forms that were forced south by the geology, by the, by the, uh, the, the ice age, they stayed on the south side of that rim. So the big thicket has, for example, every, every hardwood tree that grows in North America grows in the big thicket. Beech trees that you think of as being native to Canada Maple trees that you think of as being native to Canada, they grow in the big thicket, hmm. and 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 these northern these 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 plants that, that accommodated themselves to to the post ice age era by moving back further north, they managed just to stay there. So you'll so you have cacti growing next to trilliums growing next to wild azaleas growing next to beech trees and 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 magnolias that are the size of this room and and it's it's a beautiful place it's absolutely phenomenal but nobody lived in it <laughs> nobody lived in it until after 1850 the people who did move in there died of probably yellow fever that's my theory mm. I don't know that we could prove that. We we know that yellow fever was a was a major epidemic in the late 19th century. <clears throat> well, that's definitely a part of Texas I'm not familiar with. When I think of East Texas, I think of refineries along the southern portion of the of the state. Sure. Uh, but uh, wow, uh, the, Texas is such a unique environment because it's such a large state, and so you know you. you it's crazy. You go from the, the beaches along the Gulf to the, the, the canyons up in North Texas, you know, along uh, near uh, uh, Kansas and that. I forget the yeah. plains, I should say. Uh, and then the desolation on the western side of, of Texas. 
you know, it's just flat country when you drive across there. How did you oh, escape yeah. that uh, the smaller town that you were in? Oh, well, I guess maybe I ought to say that I ended up in that smaller town because my wife and I had been teaching um, a college up in northern New York State. We finally got fed up with the winters up there and we kept daydreaming about going back to her hometown. So we went back. It was her hometown. We met in New Orleans. Uh, we, we've been married 52, going on 53 years. Uh, and we decided we couldn't take another winter in upstate New York. Uh, so we moved back to, to East Texas and, uh, uh, and, and start, started a family. I founded a newspaper and we stayed there about 15 years. Uh, how did I get away? Well, uh, I sold, I sold my newspaper. That's, that's how, oh, there you, go. <laughs> you know, I mean, honest, honest to goodness, once you've got, uh, uh, once you've got a, 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 a an enterprise like that where you're uh, you know you're the you're the proprietor and you and your sure. livelihood depends on making it go yeah uh, it's like your foot is nailed to the to the floor there oh, you know, somebody nailed your foot in there and you can't get loose uh, but another newspaper went out of business uh, went bankrupt and uh, and and the guy who printed my newspaper was also the guy who printed the other newspaper and he approached me and said, would you be willing to sell so I can combine these two papers? He says, I think it would be profitable for me. And I thought, I thought, well, you know, it would also be profitable to me if I bought the other paper. But by that point, my wife had said, you know, we're, we're getting out of here. <laughs> oh, she was ready to go. <laughs> She, well, she by that time she had already gone back to teaching at the at the university. She was teaching at uh, Lamar University in Beaumont. So, uh, so I said, okay. Well, so I, we sold my, our paper, <laughs> and uh, I had enjoyed teaching when I when I'd been doing it during grad school and immediately afterward. So I, I went back to teaching, and I decided I would start teaching in um, high school because you don't have to have the uh, the scholarship. Uh, the scholarly background to do to do high school, and I'd been out of the scholarship routine. You know, the the rat race for 15 years. It was going to be virtually impossible for me to catch up again without doing another four years of intensive study. Okay. So, uh, so that so I started teaching high school. I taught in um, I taught in um, uh, some of the rural high schools there in uh, in East Texas, and then moved down to uh, to Beaumont. And, my wife and I moved to Beaumont uh, to, to Refinery City, as you really point out. Um, and uh, I was teaching in an inner city, um, um, would you call it a ghetto school? I guess you would. Um, and inner, the, inner city school and the, better. And I used to teach in inner city school too. It's a challenge. And it's, you really have to really have the patience as a teacher. I taught for X amount of years as well. And, then move yeah. to entrepreneurship and uh, yeah. my show and all these different things. But teaching is just a valuable profession. So if you would summarize your book in like two minutes, what would you say so people should go purchase the book? Okay. The book is, uh, the book is based on a series of murders in uh, East Texas. Um, there are murders that occurred, but partly because, and, and they're based on, on true facts, on true events. 
uh, occurred partly because the um, the perpetrator was too uneducated to um, reason from uh, his behaviors to the consequences of his behaviors. So he was pretty much, he had dropped out of school and so he was pretty much condemned to a life of ignorance uh, and stayed condemned to it until his, um, his society decided to execute him. Um, he actually, uh, the, the, um, he went next door to his neighbor's house, a woman who had a three-year-old daughter. He thought they were not at home. And he went over there to raid her icebox because he wanted to get some food. Well, she and the daughter came home unexpectedly while he was in there. So he killed them and hmm. carried her, carried the, the bodies off in the trunk. Well, in her car, I guess it was in the trunk, way off 30, 40 miles, dumped them, drove the car back to her, her place, finished raiding the icebox, stole a two pound package of ground meat and a jar of pennies off the kitchen counter. Oh, my goodness. And that's where the title of the book comes from, because it was a jar of pennies that ended up sending him to the, the, uh, the penitentiary and then to the, to the death chamber. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. So oh. now it, it, this is not a whodunit story. This is more a why done it. Are there, are there kinds of interventions that could have occurred in, the, in this man's life or should have occurred that would have helped him turn from a life of pure reaction to a life of, of uh, critical thinking, you know, some way of thinking about what, what he was doing? Uh, that's basically what I am um, examining in the story. It's kind of a biography of violence and fear and murder. Well, John, and, uh, it seems interesting. Do you want to have this into a movie someday or, or some sort of thing based on the murders and all that stuff? Is that a goal? Well, I think, I think it would be fun. I, I mean, I think, there's, I think there are a, a movie-type elements in it, uh, you know, and I think there, there are a variety of heroes. Uh, I have, a, you know, obviously I have a, one of the heroes is a, is a newspaper reporter, young newspaper reporter, guess who? Uh, not, <laughs> not me, but sort of. Yeah. Uh, another hero is a retired Air Force colonel who is black and, and uh, decides uh, in his retirement that he's going to go teach high school because wow. mm -hmm. educating people is, is the only way to prevent war in the future. And he wants to do his part. So, yes. uh, strong characters, yeah. So where's the best place people can purchase your book and learn more about you, John? Okay, uh, Amazon, it's available on Amazon. Um, it's available both in uh, Kindle and uh, in print. It's also available uh, on Apple Books, uh, obviously as an ebook. Uh, you can ask for it at your uh, local bookstore and they have a way of, of ordering a copy for you uh, and, and, uh, and getting it in there. Um, so I guess that gives you what three different places. Um, Amazon, Apple Books, and and your local your local bookstore. And uh, and best and you said that. And is there a place we can follow you and find info on you? Where can we go? I'm sorry. Repeat. You have a uh, social media people can follow you and find. Oh you? yes, 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 yes. Uh, I'm on uh, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. Uh, just look me up, John Yearwood. 
John Yearwood author. Oh, uh, that's me. All right, excellent, John. We appreciate it. Do you have yeah. one more question, Ted? For I was just going to say he's also got his own website. That's John, right, johnyearwood.com. Johnyearwood.com. Yeah, I do. All right. Appreciate it, John. Neil, thank you, sir. Ted, thank you. You're listening to watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and the Media Giant Effect and also Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, how are you? What's going on, man? Excited about that? Fantastic. Yeah, I'm super excited about today's interview. Absolutely. Let's just kind of go in. Our guest today is Steve Peters, and we're going to talk about two main things today. We're going to talk about his interview with Tammy Faye. Uh, and we'll learn more about, you know, his experience knowing Tammy Faye, and we all know her from specific things. And then also Elton John interview and how hit in the thing about Tammy Faye, Elton John's uh, current project. So, Steve, thanks for stopping by. And Steve, I mean, you got to be very happy that so many people know your story and are able to tell it. And especially how your interview with Tammy Faye changed a lot of people's lives forever. Yeah, I, it's very gratifying, and I, I've been totally uh, uh, just surprised by the amount of tension it, attention it's gotten in the last couple of years alone, um, seeing as it was 37 years ago that it happened. Um, so it was, uh, you know, at the time, I didn't think I'd done a very good job, and I told a friend, I'm certainly glad no one I know will ever see this, uh, but uh uh, obviously, that has proved to be wrong, and a lot of people have seen it. It's had over 212,000 views on YouTube uh, at this point. Wow. Um, and that's those experiences of having those interviews, Greg, right, Greg? Would you agree? It's like uh, when stories come out through the media, right, Greg? That's uh, really true. I mean, you know, interviewing and having the opportunity to meet people like Steve and all the other great people that we've had the opportunity to meet over the past, uh, you know, months has been fantastic. So, you know, Steve, so, so tell me what, what was it like, you know, um, interacting with Elton? Did you get to meet with him directly or? How did... Well, actually he called me and, and uh, to thank me and, and uh, just to tell me how important I was to his show. And, and uh, it, it was really kind of surreal to, see the caller ID come from uh, England. And of course, it didn't say who it was. I picked it up and he said, Steve, this is Elton. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it was an instantly recognizable voice. And I could almost hear him sing Candle with the Wind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Candle with the Wind. But uh, um, it, was, uh, it was a delightful conversation. And uh, I'm thrilled that it, ha that it happened. And, and uh thrilled that I'm part of the show. Uh, so. Yeah. And that's in that process were any of your interview when that movie came out with Tammy Faye, the one that was the latest one that did really well. Uh, did that, it was your, were you in that at all that your character? Yes. My interview, a portion of my interview was in that film and, and Jessica Chastain uh, invited me to be her date for the Oscar nominees luncheon uh, that year. And uh, so it was really something to not only meet Tammy, uh, Tammy, uh, uh, Jessica on the on the red carpet in New York at the premiere there uh, in September of last year, but it was just a, a, another surreal experience to be at the Oscar luncheon as her date. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> to have her on my arm. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm gay, but I'm still like, oh my God, <laughs> this beautiful woman is on my arm. Jeez. And talented too. I mean, she was extraordinary. And my she told me that my interview was the reason she decided to do the, the movie, why she bought the rights. Uh, so she um, she evidently had the whole interview filmed with her in and uh, Randy Havens as me, um, and they used the you know uh, maybe three or four minutes of it in the actual film. That's 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 tremendous. And Greg again, never knowing one moment you have, Greg, that can change a world forever. As, as uh -huh. we, we, no, that's really true. You know, Steve, you know, I was just interested, you know, reading your bio. Um, I'm always curious, you know, I think like most people, I love God, right? Um, yeah. What what got you in, into wanting to be a, a priest? I mean, that's pretty, pretty cool. Well, I'm not a priest. I'm a minister. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, the, uh, priests are Catholic or Episcopalian. And I'm uh, definitely a Protestant. And, uh, <laughs> But I, you know, in my 20s, I had every intention of being a musical theater star. Uh, I wanted to be a Broadway performer. Uh, and uh, that was not happening. Uh, doors were slamming in my face everywhere I turned. And uh, I was going to church uh, trying to deal with my sexuality. And uh, and this church that I was going to was is very pro-gay church. And uh, uh, and. I had this spiritual awakening and realized that, I mean, I, I realized with a blinding clarity that what I really wanted to do with my life was to be a pastor and a minister. And so I switched directions and all the doors came flying open as I, you know, went into the ministry. And, and uh, so that was a clear uh, calling, I think. And yeah. And, Certainly none of this would have ever happened if I hadn't followed that calling. So I'm perhaps more famous now than I ever would have been if I had <laughs> a musical yeah, theater. I was talking to Greg off air preparing for this interview, and I said, you know, your 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 contacts are I'm sure huge because of who you've met, uh, you know, from meeting the most legendary people in the world. You've not written a book yet on this? On, on oh, I have. I've, I've got a memoir that I wrote uh, during COVID, the lockdown primarily, and I've been working on it ever since. And, and I have a literary agent who's trying to sell it to some publisher at this point. And oh, we so haven't found a publisher yet, but I'm hopeful that one may come along soon. I think that the celebrities that you met and stuff down the road could be a help to you. You know, because oh, yeah. because oh. if you're not gotten it sold yet, that's surprising, especially with the the community so yeah. behind you and yeah. all the different celebrities. I'm sure it's not it's soon. I'm sure it'll be soon. Especially well, from your lips to God's ears, because <laughs> <laughs> that's all it is. Greg is a story. A story transforms people. And when we were reading more especially of your bio what really pointed my direction to greg to greg was the amazing people he you have met right greg like yeah, it's incredible to yeah. have minutes with president clinton and i'm sure first lady hillary clinton and meeting whoopi goldberg and i mean i couldn't imagine these things greg you know Elizabeth taylor i mean one of the great movie star you know and yeah so, yeah yeah 
That's incredible. Who Who is your favorite person uh, that you've met so far? My favorite. Oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm partial to Jessica Chastain. Uh, well, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons. I'm partial to Elton John. Um, no, I mean, obvious- I mean, have minutes of the Elton, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but uh, the, you know, beyond that, I mean, President Clinton was a delight to meet, and what an opportunity to sit next to him during that prayer breakfast and get to speak truth to power, literally, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, share with him the issues closest to my heart. And uh, and Shirley MacLaine was another one who uh, I met, who I've met several times actually in the course of the last years. Uh, and in 1985, she introduced me when I spoke at the very first Hollywood benefit for AIDS when Rock Hudson was dying uh, and Elizabeth Taylor threw this huge banquet. Um, and uh, I was the person with AIDS who spoke and Shirley MacLaine introduced me and she was wonderful. She was so delightful and so much fun. So, well, That's incredible. And yeah. would, would you say, uh, you know, meeting some of these celebrities, were you surprised at their humility in certain ways, especially? Yeah, they- Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I was talking to Elton John, I thought, I, it feels like I'm just talking to another guy, you know, <laughs> and and I am. Uh, but I mean, a legend, but nevertheless, it, it, he came off as just, you know, another of the guys. And um, and Jessica Chastain was so down to earth and real, and and Shirley MacLaine was very you know look in your eye and be honest and and you know just very very truthful and authentic in her presentation. So and Clinton, I mean, you know, I I sat there next to him and thought, wow, he looks like a real human being. I mean, and he sounds just like Bill Clinton. He looks like Bill Clinton. <laughs> Whoa. Um, and and he was very down to earth and real, too. Uh, very authentic. Oh, that's incredible. Well, you, you know, I, I love Steve, I love to ask, you know, all our guests, you know, especially for my my listeners. Um, I get to speak to people such as yourself that have done so much and have gone through so much and have so much more runway, you know, to go. Um, what's the most important thing that you feel that you've ever learned that you can share with my audience? Wow. That's huge. Well, I think, you know, the word love comes to mind that uh, I think it's so important to be loving and kind and and giving and uh, creative and, and all those positive things in life that you can do to be of service to others, uh, because it's in being of service to others that I have found the greatest rewards and the greatest gratification, certainly. Um, so loving kindness, being of service, I think those are very important. And another thing I, I've learned through the whole AIDS crisis and and now and in these years with COVID and all is uh, a Native American expression that the quality of life is not measured by the length of life, but by the fullness with which we enter into each present moment. Uh, so uh, the call is to be here now in this moment. And in this moment, I choose to feel joy. I choose to lean into the joy of living and of being alive against all the odds, you know, so. Very nice. Excellent. I love it. Um, so last question for you. How did you land the Tammy Faye interview? 
Did you? Uh, that's yeah. usually the first question. Yeah. <laughs> Why have we gotten so many interesting ones? <laughs> well, uh, what happened was that she what decided she wanted to be the first televangelist to interview a gay man with AIDS. And so she searched, she had a producer search throughout the East and the South, and they couldn't find anybody willing to go on the show with her. And uh, and so she happened to call the Aid, uh, Aid Atlanta agency, which was their AIDS agency. And uh, the executive director there is a friend of mine, and uh, he referred them to me. And so they called and I said, well, I don't know. I mean, Tammy Faye Baker. You know? And I wasn't sure at all about doing it. And I, I wanted their assurance that it would go out live. Uh, so they couldn't edit it to their purposes, and and they agreed to that right away, and and uh, assured me that she would not be doing a number on me in terms of trying to persuade me that AIDS was God's punishment or anything like that. So uh, I went on, you know, and trusted the process, and found, you know, the the woman I met that day in Tammy Faye Baker was a very loving, compassionate, kind woman who uh, really was as positive and and supportive as she could possibly be wow. which was radical in those days particularly for a televangelist exactly because it changed it turned everything upside down and that's why the bakers fell because exactly. literally they what they wouldn't have if it wasn't for they really ticked off a specific group of people that were very controlling as so you got to see the movie and check all those different things out. Where's the best place people can check you out? Where can they go? Well, you can go to uh, Facebook and uh, I I'm a Reverend Steve, Rev Steve Peters. I'm still dancing is my public page. And, and, uh, uh, and I'm on Instagram at AS Peters, P I E T E R S. And uh, so uh, look for me there. Yeah. We appreciate it. Thanks again, Steve, for stopping by. Yeah, thanks, Thank Steve. You. Thanks. All right, for that was the Neil Haley Show and celebrity interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Take care.